When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 121st episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is embracing generational diversity. I'm joined by Chris DeSantis. He's the author of Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. The publisher is Amplify. Chris is an organizational behavior practitioner, speaker, podcaster, and author, working primarily with clients in professional services firms worldwide. He holds degrees from Notre Dame, the University of Denver, and Loyola University. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you very much, Dan. Pleasure being here. Absolutely. So uh, give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. No, no, not at all. Uh, The book is really uh, in two parts. The front end of the book is where I discuss this notion of generational diversity and differentiate it from our stages of life. And then I talk a little bit about parenting models relative to how that influences who we are and who we become, and then how that sort of those behavioral choices that we make, or as a consequence of being raised this way, how that impacts the workplace. Then the second uh, part of the book, it really concentrates on uh, what do you want to do about that in terms of being more prescriptive in areas such as feedback, mentoring, working on teams, or in one particular area I call uh, lopsidedness, which is really the embracing of what is unique about us and accepting what is uh, the other characteristics of who we are in, in terms of performance and making them palatable to the people we work for rather than try to focus on developing something we're not great at doing. 
Sure. No, fair enough. Uh, I think maybe we should level set for the listeners. So can you go over the kind of the definition of each of the generations just briefly and maybe one uh, stellar attribute that you would ascribe to that generation, even though we both know stereotypes are indeed stereotypes? Yes, exactly. In fact, I bring both of that point up in the book. I talk about generalization and where that comes from, because we do tend to generalize. And to your point, I, I talk about stereotyping because that gets in the way of this discussion, because one once you assign something to the group, it's the assumption that all the group, it represents everyone in that group. That is not the case in this. This is more normative in terms of behavior, and it becomes, but it does become an expectation of the other if you see it with any kind of frequency. So the, the groups I really deal with are, again, uh, and this is another point I have to sort of clarify, is that they're, they're, they're not silos. They're sort of waves. So the first wave is, of course, the traditionalists. Uh, they are not in the workplace. They usually go from the Pew Research of about 1922 to about 1943. Then uh, I spent a lot more time on the boomers. Uh, these are the groups born between about 1945 to about 1964. I'm a baby boomer. And so our group, I think we are much more of an optimistic crowd. We are the last of the tactile meters, I, uh, people who meet you in person. The group after that, which uh, gets very little notice, are the Gen Xers. They were born, again, in the Pew Research numbers, around 1965 to about 1981. They are known for their independence and their sort of self-sufficiency. And then the group after that, which gets much maligned, is that is the millennials. And so, and they were born around 1982 to about 1996, again, according to the Pew Research. And their, one of their traits is just their assertiveness, which we call insubordination. The last group then that I address are the Gen Zs, and they are just coming into the workplace. So I speak to them, but I speak in a more speculative uh, fashion simply because we are not defined by who we are in terms of our interactions with uh, those who are just like us, but rather who we are as a consequence of interacting with those who are not like us. So they were born really in the years of about 1997 to, through about 19 or 2012. After 2012, uh, the, the placeholder name are called uh, Gen Alpha. I think that's just there simply because we are, we're, they haven't come up with a name for them and we're starting the alphabet again. Gen Z will be, I will call also, an Echo X generation. They will have their own sort of uh, curated self that they will present to you, but they are more complex than we, they might appear. Okay. Um, just thought that would be of help to listeners. So I want to go back to, uh, you know, by, you know, just a few years from now, if I've read correctly, uh, millennials and then increasingly Gen Z together will comprise about 70% of the workplace. Uh, so, you know, that, that's the big thing I think we'll probably focus on a bit more. So one thing that got my attention in the book is you, you mentioned that each successive generation since the boomers have been increasingly, uh, suspicious of what you called unfettered capitalism. Uh, why has that happened? And what do you mean by unfettered capitalism? Well, I, I think what's happening here in society is we, we were, I'm a product, Dan, I believe you are as well. We are a product of, of a period called the Great Compression. And the Great Compression were the years between 44 and about 73. And compression meant that we were compressed to the middle class. There, there, weren't, there, there were the rich, but not the very rich. And there were the poor, but the poor were moving up into the blue collar. And so the white collar, blue collar sort of formed this contingent, which was the bulk of society. 
Now what's happening today is that we're, we're bifurcating that, our middle class into the upper wings of it and then the lower, lower group of that. And we're staying within our balkanized group because one of the challenges today is quite frankly, the young in this group, in the, in the in I will call the anointed, are, are mingling only with other people in the anointed group. And so that has a, as a consequence of parents vetting their children's friends and assortative mating uh, in the sense that you're only meeting people of the same economic class. So this notion here of uh, unfettered capitalism is that we're starting to recognize that we're, those people are pulling ahead and the others are falling behind and we're splitting our own middle class, which I think is one of the concerns of the future. Yeah, no, I, I get asked on interviews um, for a book I just put out recently called Emotionomics 2.0, uh, what I think is one of the seminal issues. And I, I always go back to inequality, among other factors, and it, it spurred even more so recently by something I uh, came across, and maybe you will have an observation regarding it. Uh, it was from the Federal Reserve Board. They were looking at millennials and where they are at in terms of accruing wealth and assets vis-a-vis boomers who you know, presumably were usually their parents. Uh, they're something like 13% behind the pace of the boomers. So um, if they <laughs> struggle with the belief that, fed, that the capitalism is working, that uh, equality exists at all or sufficiently, uh, you know, that kind of lifestyle and the assets they don't have staring them right in the face. So you talk about left-wing and right-wing populism in response to inequality. How do you see that playing out, not just at the ballot box, but in the workplace? Well, it's it's interesting because in the workplace, uh, we don't we don't necessarily discuss the politics of a situation. Although I think politics are coming uh, far more into the conversation than they once were, and I also think the the, the outcome of politics political discussion is again polarization we're not trying we're not finding common ground and this is of course uh, there was a book called fractured recently that really addresses this about this notion of we're, we, again we talk to our own the plms the people like me so we don't find common ground around what do, what does the, what do we have in common what, what we do find is what we don't have in common and therefore we stay within our our factions uh, so i think part of the concern of any workplace is to uh, well i'll tell you the number one concern is make sure everyone's paid well relative to their contributions. Uh, and I, I'm not fond, quite frankly, even though I don't address this in the book, I am not fond of the discrepancy between those at the highest rank of an organization and those at the lowest. And this range at one time used to be 16 to 19, meaning a CEO to a line worker. And now it could be upwards of three to 400 times, which has changed. And, it's, and so that's, I think that's a detriment to our ultimate uh, collaboration or as a, as a society. I, I couldn't agree more. I was in a conversation not long ago with a retired CEO of a bank and he said, you know, I drew a nice salary, uh, but my uh, friends who also were CEOs of other banks or other organizations laughed at me because I decided to put a curb on how much money I was going to take home. I, I felt I had made plenty enough and didn't need to take more. And they all mocked me essentially because they said you could you know, the way the things work, you could grab as much as you wanted. Why would you limit yourself? Uh, and yet, uh, I, I, and yet I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, every company says they need to pinch pennies. Uh, there's a really obvious place to look. Uh, it's at the top of the pyramid. Um, boy, they could fund a lot more initiatives and R and D uh, and, you know, not pair back benefits if, if there wasn't so much, uh, 
self-indulgence, I guess I'll call it um, at the top oh, of the absolutely. pecking order. I, if I, I think I read recently, uh, labor has gone up about 80% in terms of the last su- some years. And, but uh, when you think about the, the upper echelons, that's gone up 500% in terms of their, their return. So this notion of when you hear in the press, oh, labor is pushing for more income. Well, you know, I don't think they're doing anything unreasonable, but the, I think what is unreasonable is when you take everything, when it's captured at the very top. The Gini coefficient yeah. is skewing in the wrong direction in the country. Yeah. In fact, there's a point in the book where you say we, we must democratize the workplace. And in addition to uh, applauding the statement, I, I wonder what specifically you might mean and what initiatives you'd most like to see transpire in the workplace if only you and I perhaps could uh, control the world. Well, I think one thing we have to think about is, and I bring this up in the book, is this idea of teams. I think work is more and more complex in all capacities, I mean, any kind of work, and complexity requires cooperation. That means we have to depend more on teams to execute. And by the way, the young are really designed to be more collaborative, and I don't say designed genetically, but rather experientially in terms of their schooling and all of that. And so with that being the case, I think uh, we have to start to reevaluate how we reward and skew it more towards teams, because when you skew it more towards teams, you, you require greater cooperation across, as opposed to when you reward individuals, then you make you create competition within teams. And I think that sub optimizes performance and it goes against the model, which I would uh, I would endorse that we are in this together. And I, I also read recently, and I don't know what their evidence was, but uh, that really the best situations where you weren't just on one team, you were on actually around four to five teams, the data seemed yes. to suggest. Yes. They gave you, uh, and, and hopefully outside of your own department even to some degree. Yes, By, um, which is critical again, because you have to reward outside of the department. Otherwise, you have a departments silo-driven, uh, uh, basically competing against each other for resources. When in fact we should be on the same team. Yeah, if only, if right. only, indeed. Um, another comment in the book that I, I was wondering what you might want to say regarding it. Uh, you said emotions uh, have an especially profound effect on how we see the world. Um, are there certain emotions you have in mind? Certain emotions that are most pertinent to the generations in the workplace now? No, when, when I think of this, because I think one of the things we make the, 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 the error on is that we think logically or we think emotionally as if these are binary. We don't do that. What we do is we think through the lens of emotion and then we ascribe logic to that. This is what a very interesting book called The Enigma of Reason really talks about reason is really just the, the social, sort of the social lubricant for the choices we're making emotionally. So we, we, so I think we have to sort of recognize that a lot of what we do and say to others is contingent upon how we feel about them. And then we, of course, legitimize that through whatever rationalizations we use in the discussion. But I, to your point, and I, I, I'm sorry to go on here, Dan, but to your point no, no. is that go right I, I think that the challenge is the, the, the negative emotions weigh, weigh strong. You see what I'm saying? It's like any negative. It's like feedback in general. I discussed this. They're louder. It, it's louder because we're designed to protect ourselves from threat. And so any, the negative emotions sort of bubble up, I think, and quicker to some degree, which I'll, again, well, and, oh, and they don't get it and they don't get addressed. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a, a bad marriage where there are topics that you don't touch. It's the third rail and, and they're just left to fester. And, you know, when we see engagement numbers at work, like 17, 22%, all these God awful numbers, 
Uh, surely some of it has to be that we haven't done what I'll call the emotional house cleaning to uh, take these things on. I, I, so interesting. We, we have the most engagement of any country in the world, and, and ours is l- below 30%. So work has not really been designed to engage us. And, and people have, under this silly notion, because I get pushback on this, is, well, what, are we going to just make everybody happy? I'm not talking about making people happy. I'm talking about, really, engagement is finding the things that you do well and giving you an opportunity to do them uh, in a broader sense, relevant the things you don't like to do well, because what we do is we, we we need each other. So what can I do well that I can spend more time on? And that is, by definition, engagement. Okay. Uh, kind of speaking of that point, uh, you know, early in the book, you mentioned that the second part will really focus on work processes that can be changed or enhanced to more fully leverage uh, the generational differences. Um, so I want to give you the platform here, the stage to, uh, maybe take on a few of these work processes. You, you surely must have some, uh, favorite ideas of initiative changes that could be made. And I want to give you a chance to, uh, throw those out there for yeah, us. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a large question because you have to think systemically and I, I can start, I can start in one place is the, one of the work processes is this idea of mentoring. I discussed that in the book. I had to soften that chapter more than once because it was came off as a little like I, it, I don't want to sound like I'm opposed to mentoring. I'm a very big fan of mentoring. I'm not a big fan of the language. See, when you use language that has meaning behind it, like mentor, it implies intimacy. And what we do is we create mentoring programs. So the inference is we should be intimate with each other when I don't know you because this is an assignment. So I'm, I'm a fan of uh, assigning people somebody who would act as an advisor or a buddy that eventually evolves into a mentoring relationship. But I do like the, the uh, basically the assignment of somebody that will help me. And that might be in the first stage of the first six months. I have this buddy, somebody in a year or two, I might have a, a more advanced form of that. Then I might have an assignment to an advisor around some particular area. I also am a fan of, of, of mentoring pools or peer mentoring. These are people that help each other through the group, the collective. So we should explore how can we help each other in a way that is optimizing that help as opposed to just saying, I'm going to match you up with somebody and catch as catch can. That's just one area. Uh, yeah, and, and there's potentially no, no affinity, no chemistry. None. none. Uh, you know, that person may, or you may have someone who has certain insights, and then you've kind of gone out the back door of that shotgun house. Yes. At some point, because they've told you what they can tell you, and you need the next mentor, but you're still under assignment, quote unquote, to this person. Yes, exactly right. And so that's why I think we have to rethink the. I, I, again, I'm a very big fan of these programs, but you alluded to it, Dan, earlier when you said conversations. I think we should move away from assignment of programs and move into areas of helping people have conversations because I think that's what's key and there are levels of conversation there you know of course there and then there's the difficult conversation which we don't like to have because we are conflict adverse to your point that's the third rail we don't talk about things which is not helpful quite frankly you should talk about these things what we end up doing is we pass the problem along to somebody else can I raise a really specific question regarding the mentoring? So, you know, I think probably both of us are very concerned about how performance reviews work. Oh, yes. Um, you know, for all sorts of reasons. Yes. What about the possibility that this mentor, if there are any real bona fide value, would actually be another party that's part of the annual review? Because we both know that there is extreme subjectivity, sometimes very yes. toxic subjectivity that yes. gets imposed on these reviews. Well, in my view on that, they're not performance appraisal, they're, they're performance uh, opinions. 
And so these aren't appraisals of actual work because they're not objective. They are, as you said, they're subjective relative to who is saying that and what their particular mood was when they said these things. And they are spoken in conclusions typically rather than the actual behaviors they engage in. So it's a compilation of what I think you are. So for instance, what we often say to a young person, you're not a team player. Well, I can't do anything about that because you haven't told me what I'm doing relative to be perceived that way. To your point then, Dan, is not, rather than assign a mentor in the evaluation process, which is a threat, meaning it, I, I don't think that's the way to go, because if you go that way, they become part of the entity, meaning that, okay, you're part of yeah. the evaluation. Now, what I would do is I would assign, I would assign them as the defender of the, your about meaning that I would assign them in the, in the reverse, the interpreter and or defender, meaning that, uh, okay, let me look at the, sit down with you and what they've said about you and who said it. Because this mentor will have insights both into the culture and to the people saying it. And so they can then reef, they can really ah, interpret, yeah, like that. interpret the document for them because this is a document that's highly politicized. Yeah, no, all true. So, um, so we've hit on one thing, mentoring. What are some other work processes uh, before we run out of time here that you might want to hit on? Maybe one or two others. Yes, that, well, uh, this, this performance appraisal thing is has been a big bugaboo of mine. I just know I don't. I find them very poorly done because what they do is they measure across, let's say, twelve measure, twelve aspects, traits. The reality is your job does, isn't comprised at any given time of 12 aspects, yet they have to measure you. So what ends up doing is you end up paying attention to things you don't do much of or that you haven't had, you don't excel in. So my point would be, I think we have to redesign our performance appraisals that reflect the actual work you're doing at that particular point in time. And we have to start accepting that uh, good enough is fine. I would even go so far as get rid of numbers. When you have a numbering system, you end up putting people in, a, in an artificial bell curve. But when you let, use language of good, they're good, uh, they've exceeded expectations, or they're great, uh, or this still needs some work. You see, these, these are dialogue cues. But when you have somebody who just uses a number, you already put them in a position of, of where should I go? See, good is a nice conversation. Three, not so nice because you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. You're good or you're a three. Which one do you want to be seen as? And so I say you want to be seen as a good. So we should have conversation, use the language that is more reflective of the willingness to have a conversation to be a listener in that. I hope that. Okay. And that, that, uh, I, I'm on board. Uh, maybe, one, maybe one more, and then I have one last closing question. Well, let's see. Uh, uh, this puts me on the spot a little bit here about one more. Let, 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 I, I will have to shirk that, that answer just because, uh, because of the time I would go with the last question. Ah, okay. Fair enough. So um, I had an intriguing conversation the other day with uh, someone who's a professor and mentioned that, you know, when we moved off the farms into the factories, uh, thanks also do some progressive things like child labor laws and and then probably some some uh, gender discrimination so that women weren't invited into those factories, at least in some cases. In other cases, they were absolutely invited in because they were paid less. Um, that we, we had a workforce that truncated um, and people had started going to school longer and so forth. So I, I bring this all around to the advances with AI and the prospects, not just of white collar offshoring to follow up on the blue-collar offshoring that happened back with globalization and the rise of China as a manufacturing center. But this person raised the prospect that we could, 10 years out, maybe less, maybe more, uh, face a situation where the workforce is uh, diminished in size yet again, and white-collar jobs, which have been at least somewhat immune, 
to the uh, same uh, disruptions as blue collar, although plenty of disruptions, will really face a, a considerable onslaught. So this will impact certainly a lot more Gen Z uh, than it will be the boomers who will be out the door by the time it unfolds. But have you been reading or thinking about that kind of issue? Yeah, yeah it's hard to, my concern, I, I, in fact, I wrote an article about this. My concern about predicting the future is it, it's lin, we, our predictions are linear as opposed to uh, the reality of so many uh, forces that come into play at once. So to this point of, okay, we'll be using fewer and f- more robotics, fewer and fewer people. We don't also take into account other things like, well, what are new jobs that are yet to be invented? Because I think there's going to be work that is yet to be invented. The other thing I think is really important here Dan, is once you start affecting the white collar worker, you start going after the real money. And when you start going after the real money, all of a sudden they're going to be very involved. And how do we how do we guarantee the future of humanity? You follow when you make the people who are uncomfortable, who are the most comfortable, uncomfortable. All of a sudden, I think you're going to change. You're going to start to see a greater engagement saying, wait a second, we've got to start taking care of people. We've got to make sure that they have a a sort of a, a dignity, the, the work you know, the work that they need that sustains them and things like that. So I would like to see some fear on their part, but not, of course, not to obliterate the, the white collar job, but rather to recognize all of us are in this together. But we also, but we have to protect each other in totality. I mean, we have to find the, um, the, the what's the commons, to, taking care of the commons, the things that we are all responsible to each other. I hope that was clear enough. <laughs> no, no, I, I get, I get the gist to where you're headed. I mean, you know, these, it, it's. I'm not fond of being playing futurist because it's complicated and tends to be off base in the end as to what actually transpired. But uh, still, it, it does. You know, people always wonder what's over the horizon. Well, it's an interesting, Dan. I think all predictions of the future, except for you know some science fiction ones, uh, they're not utopian. They tend to be, they, they tend to be less than utopian, and yet we still progress. And, and so I, I have great faith in the young. I think their, their sensibility about taking care of others, they have a high sense of social responsibility, a great sense of uh, uh, equity and, and, and uh, commitment to inclusion. And if those are, are the traits that they carry, I think they'll carry us forward. Oh, no, I, I think that's a wonderful way to essentially close the interview because I, I have detected the same things. I was on a campus not long ago with the students and a, a professor as a guide, and uh, that's really what stood out to me was the very traits you're talking about. So um, for everyone, this has been episode 121, uh, Embracing Generational Diversity. My guest, Chris DeSantis, he is the author once again of Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, it comes from none other than Igor Stravinsky, who said, it is one of nature's, it is one of nature's way that we often feel closer to distant generations than to the generation immediately preceding us. Until next time, take care and be well. Mm-hmm.